are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. John 1, 6 through 8, and 15 through 18. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Thanks, Megan. Megan is finishing her three-year term of service on our leadership team and is going to continue to run point for us on Y groups. So if you are looking to get connected to a Y group, Megan is who to see, or you can stop at our connections table. Well, I I trust you're able to name a good variety of Christmas characters as you shared those answers around the table. And we're about to dive into this passage and do some thinking work and some heart work together. And so I'd like to get you warmed up by providing a fun little quiz as we start. I ran into something that a therapist wrote where he did short psychological evaluations of some well-known Christmas characters. And I'm wondering if you might be able to guess who they are. And I'm just going to share sort of the bullet points he started off with. He had these evals as if these characters were his clients. I'm wondering if I just share the first little bit, if you might be able to guess who they are. So I've got four of these. Character number one, his presenting problems include anger, resentment, and an abnormally fast-paced growth of heart. The answer... The Grinch. Very good. Character number two, presenting problems. Loneliness, grief, and loss. His strengths are business and financial planning. I heard it already, yes. Scrooge was the answer, in case you missed it. The therapist did say he's making good progress, and he recently finished a scrapbook in memory of his friend, the late Jacob Marley. So he's coming along. Character number three, presenting problems, melancholy and low self-esteem, strengths, he's kind-hearted, loyal to his friends, and he has a beautiful bald head. Charlie Brown, yes, not a Christmas character per se, but um, a great movie this time of year. And finally, character number four, this is the last one, it's actually a pair of characters, presenting problems. Basic disregard for others' property, egotism, and the fact that they are easily outwitted. A strength is their strong will to succeed. And if you need another clue, they do have a diagnosis of kleptomania and are the only characters on this list who have served jail time. Yes, that's right. It is Marv and Harry, the Wet Bandits, from Home Alone. All right, well, I hope you're finding some time to enjoy those favorite movies and books and Christmas stories. 
Here at the Y Church, we're making our way through the original and true story of Christmas as told in John chapter 1. And as we pointed out last week, John tells the Christmas story in quite a different style than the three other Gospels, which he knew and which were written before his. John is drawing out the same story in different words, but all four Gospels actually begin with the character to whom we're introduced today, John the Baptist. Now, John, who's writing, is the disciple, John. That was Jesus' youngest disciple, the one who also lived the longest. Uh, The John that he's writing about is John the Baptist, or baptizer is what that means. So this John that he writes about was Jesus' cousin, born to Elizabeth just six months before Jesus was born to Mary. John the disciple, as he writes his gospel, he skips the story of John the Baptist's birth, that whole birth narrative we studied last year in Luke, because he knows that's covered by Matthew and Luke. And instead, he goes right to John's ministry assignment, which is where we pick it up in verse 6. It says, There was a man sent by God whose name was John. Now, the name John comes from an Old Testament name, actually, Yohanan, which means Yahweh, or the Lord, is gracious. Or put another way, graced by God. And we have some Johns here at the Y Church. Can we see a few hands that are out there? We have a few Johns here at the Y Church. May we never think of that name as just a common name. It's actually an exceptional name that reminds us of God's grace. And here then in verse 7, right away comes John's assignment. It says he came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. Now the language that you see there, witness, testify, believe, that's courtroom language, isn't it? And we're going to find it all over John's gospel. In fact, later he'll tell the story of Jesus on trial before Pilate where false witnesses testify. And that it's also John's gospel where Pilate asks, what is truth? John is presenting Jesus on trial in his gospel And John the Baptist is sent as a witness to testify to the light, to the truth. That light, you might recognize from last week where we left off, as we were introduced to Jesus as the light of all mankind and the light that shines in the darkness. But now look at the second half of that sentence, and you'll see the purpose statement of John the Baptist's testimony. Here's the purpose it serves. So that through him, John the Baptist, his testimony, all might believe. That's the reason God sent him and gave him this task. At the end of chapter 10 in John, we have a good little summary of John the Baptist's ministry where people are going across the Jordan now to see Jesus and they're saying as they go, all that John said about this man is true. And then in John 10.42 it says, and in that place... Many believed in Jesus. That's why John came, and it was happening. And I wonder, how did you come to believe? Who was it that told you about Jesus, or told you the story? And if we were to have that as a table question, we'd have all kinds of answers and people named across this room. But one answer I have never heard named by somebody 
is for somebody to say John the Baptist. And yet, as one writer pointed out for me this week, reflecting on this verse, all who have ever come to faith are indirectly dependent on the testimony of John the Baptist. And that includes you and me. John is part of my faith story. He spoke the truth about Jesus, the light, so that all might believe. And we're going to return to that theme again in just a little bit as it's the title of the message this morning. But for now, let's go to verse 15 where we have one further verse about John before the rest of our study will shift to Jesus. Now, in our NIV Bible translations, which is the blue one that we have there and the one you see on the screen, verse 15 appears in parentheses. And those parentheses are not in the original text. But what the translators are trying to show you and I when they add them is that this verse is like a parenthetical remark. So John has already moved on in chapter 1, but now he's reminded once more about John the Baptist, and he wants to add this. So he does. And here's what he says. John testified, there's that word again, right? Courtroom language. John testified concerning him, concerning Jesus. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, there's a cryptic-sounding sentence, isn't it? But here to help us understand it a little bit more, I'm going to invite up two brothers, Johnny and his foreign exchange brother, Peter, who are willing to be my volunteers this morning, or voluntold to be my volunteers this morning. So we'll make a little bit of room for them. And yes, Johnny, we're going to park you right here front and center. Peter, on this side, you guys are big, imposing figures. So here, now I can see you again. So Johnny is uh, fittingly going to represent John the Baptist. Johnny the Baptist is right there. (laughs) Peter, his foreign exchange brother from Germany, is going to represent Jesus. But not for long. (laughs) All right, now remember from the story, how much older was John the Baptist than Jesus? Six months, all right? And Johnny, how much older are you than Peter? 11 weeks. And that makes a difference, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right, so now what I want us to see is what this verse is illustrating here. Keeping this in mind, that in Bible culture, if you were older, even just six months or 11 weeks, that was a big deal. Because honor was ascribed by virtue of age and precedence. So this means that Johnny is clearly the superior brother in this case. All right? Now remember, John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. But now what is he saying in this verse? He who comes after me, right, was born after me six months later, has surpassed me. Okay, so now we're going to travel with Peter over to this side. Because he was before me. Okay, so what is he saying? How does this actually work? He is saying Jesus is actually his elder. Even though on earth he's born six months later. And how is that possible? Do you remember last week's passage? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. John is making the point 
that Jesus, the Son of God, existed eternally before him with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. And John is saying, not only has he surpassed me in age, but he has surpassed me in honor. All right, let's give it up for these volunteers. Thank you, boys. I think of later words that John the Baptist would say. It's interesting. Jesus commenting on John the Baptist said that nobody greater was ever born on earth than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one who was center stage, and yet as he began to fade, he said, no, he must increase, I must decrease. And those of you who went to see The Chosen Season 3, those first two episodes in the theater, you got to pick up where things left off for John the Baptist, and that was with him in prison. And in its imaginative retelling of the story, in the episode, John encourages the disciple Andrew, who has come to visit him in prison, and he urges him to keep his focus on Jesus, to listen to Jesus, which is exactly what we're going to do now as we shift into the second half of this passage. So parenthetical remark complete, John the writer says in verse 16, out of his fullness, out of Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Now that last phrase is one that's often referenced usually as grace upon grace. But what does grace upon grace really mean? Well, our translation gives us a clue by opting for another valid way of translating it. Grace in place of grace. And then when you flow right into verse 17, the one in the other box there, it becomes even clearer. For means because, since, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now the term the law, let's start there, was a Jewish way of referring to the Old Testament. Specifically, the first five books of the Bible, so Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Torah, that gets called, which contained the Ten Commandments and all of the laws, civil, religious, and ceremonial, that God gave to his people, the Israelites. And sometimes, you may know this full well, the, the law gets painted in a negative light, as if the law was just a heavy-handed rule book and you know, might even be out of date. And some might even emphasize, I don't know if you've run into this before, but some might really want to point out, oh, I'm a New Testament Christian, as if the Old Testament doesn't apply. But that would be a grave misunderstanding of the law and of the whole Bible, because the law was given as something good, a gift given to us by God, but with this in view, that an even better gift was on the way, which is the second half of the verse, isn't it? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So that's what grace upon grace means. The law was an earlier display of grace. It was a gift. But then new grace, fresh grace came in the sense of Jesus. The law and the, and the gospel are not opposed to each other, but they work together. The law is pointing the way to the gospel. And that's why when we're in the Old Testament, we read whispers of Jesus and prophecies of Jesus all over the place, getting us ready for that fresh grace in Christ. I would bet that some of you this morning, 
as you make your way into the month of December, are in need of fresh grace. Maybe some of you have only understood faith in the sense of the commandments as something heavy-handed, as cold and harsh or legalistic, but never understood it in the person of Christ. You've understood the letter of the law, but not the grace and truth that comes through the gospel. And so what an opportunity this Advent, in this season of your life, and that this is what the Bible is inviting you to, to get to know God and what He's really like, who He really is. And the Bible is telling us there is no better way to do that than by getting to know Jesus. So that brings us to verse 18 which is a treasure full, so we're going to read it again carefully. It says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now this verse begins with a very Jewish reminder, and that is the statement, No one has ever seen God. Think of a couple of Old Testament examples. Moses asked God in Exodus 33 if he could see his glory. And God says to him, no one may see me and live. But God says, I'm going to allow my goodness to pass in front of you while I hide you in the cleft of a rock. If you remember this story in Exodus 33. And then when it's safe to do so, I will remove my hand from your eyes. Another example would be Isaiah. Isaiah has a vision where he's in the throne room of God and it says he sees the train of God's royal robe. It might even mean just the hem, the hem of that robe. And in that moment, you remember how Isaiah responds? He's done for. He says, woe is me. I am ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips. And he says, but my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. Just a couple examples, and John is reminding us, yeah, no one has ever seen God. You can't do that and live. But, but for one person, the one and only Son. Now, does that language, one and only Son, ring any bells? Does that sound familiar from anywhere? John 3, probably the most well-known Bible verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's the same word. The old King James says his only begotten son. He's unique and he's beloved by the Father. Then in the verse we've got a couple of descriptors of the son that are interjected there into the sentence. Who is himself God is the first one. And I feel like that was such a major emphasis last week. We covered it pretty well. The Word was God was one of those key phrases last week. And so having covered it, I'd like to spend more time on the second one this week. The second descriptor you see interjected, who is in closest relationship with the Father. Now what I've put on the screen are a few of the ways that some familiar and reliable Bible translations have worded that phrase. And it's really significant, this description of Jesus. And so it bears our attention. You can see the next one on the list under, under ours, which is the NIV, is from the NASB, which is certainly one of the most literal translations. And it says, who is in the arms of the Father. Now that gets us close to the words 
of the King James, which in its day, hundreds of years ago, was, was an excellent translation. Uh, but we don't need to stay there, and, and a lot of the writing is, is now archaic. And yet, would you believe the King James actually has the most literal rendering of what the original Greek says? And the original says, in the bosom of the Father. Now, you and I don't really talk that way anymore, do we? Which is why it's in the King James, but not in some of our more current translations. But what does bosom actually mean? Maybe don't answer that out loud. Just think about it. (laughs) Merriam-Webster, definition number one. The human chest, especially the front part of the chest. Definition number two. The chest conceived of as the seat of the emotions and intimate feelings. Okay? So even though we don't use this word, I want you to think about it. And how do you naturally hold a baby who needs to be comforted? Right here. In fact, forget just babies. I mean, how do you hold an older child, even a teenager, who needs to be comforted? You, You hold them right here. You hold them close. Because what communicates the love of a father or mother more than holding their child close to their chest? And yet, it's not just the affection between parent and child. Men, men, we used to be much better at showing affection for each other in Bible times, or for that matter, still today in other parts of the world. In Arab countries, for instance, like in Qatar, where the the World Cup is being hosted, Male friends will walk down the street holding hands. If you've ever traveled to a part of the world where this is customary. So we do high fives and fist bumps and really not a whole lot more than that to show affection between male friends. But there they hold hands. They walk hand in hand. And it's not awkward. It communicates kinship and solidarity. And this is the kind of close friendship that Jesus had with his disciples. Especially the inner three, those closest to him, Peter, James, and John, the writer of this gospel. And this is evident when they're all reclining at the table in the upper room, if we fast forward John's gospel. Remember, as they would eat around the table, they didn't have chairs, but they'd have a low-lying table, and then almost these flat futon couch kinds of things. And in that story, do you remember where John is and the description given of him? It says literally that he's there at the table reclining in the bosom of Jesus. So go back to our verse now. Our English translations, you can see they're trying to capture the closeness, but in language that culturally makes sense to us. So that's why the ESV and the CSB say, at the Father's side. Now that's different, isn't it? The proximity is not quite the same, but it's more natural to our ears. And to finish the list, I actually put up a paraphrase, the Phillips, which is not a translation, but a paraphrase that I thought captures it well. It says, who lives in closest intimacy with the Father. But however you put it, all semantics aside, I find this an astounding truth. And it's what leads us to the final phrase of the verse. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son has made him known. Is how that sentence finishes. 
The word there is exegesato, which is the word from which we get exegesis. Now, that's not to be confused with Jesus, the name. It has the sound in it, but it's actually spelled E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. And exegesis is the careful study, interpretation, and explanation of Scripture. And I just bring that up to point out what this verse essentially implies, that Jesus is the exegesis of God. No one's ever seen God, John says, but Jesus explained him. He revealed him. He alone was in the position to make him known. But exegesado has another facet to it. It also means to narrate or tell the story. And another instance is after they're on the road to Emmaus, after Easter, those two disciples who were there, they exegesato. They told the story of what happened when they walked with Jesus on the road. It means to narrate, which is why the New King James says, the Son declared Him. Now the modern American agnostic will say something like this. This would be something you and I would commonly run into in our family, in our friendships, kids at school, wherever it may be. They might say, I believe there's a God. I believe God exists. But that's about all they know to say. And yet we read this verse and we see that God sent His Son to declare Him. To make Him known. To tell us, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is what I'm doing. And so back to our picture of the mountains and to bring it back to the whole verse, I'm going to read it one more time, this time with the help of the Amplified Version mixed in a little bit. Here's what it's saying. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in the intimate presence of the Father has explained Him and interpreted and revealed the awesome wonder of the Father. My friends, if you want to know God, and He is meant to be known, isn't He? That's His desire, not just to remain some grand mystery. But if you want to know God, then you have to get to know Jesus. It's that simple. It's what John the Baptist said to Andrew in that movie scene. He said, you've got to focus on Jesus. Listen to Jesus. As we close our time in study this morning, I brought along something here in this Christmas bag that hangs on display in our house. actually sits on a bookshelf. I think I've got it the right way so you can see it. It's in cursive. It says... Believe. And when you see at Christmas time the word believe in red, who is the character that you think of right away? Santa Claus, right? That's where this is usually attributed. But believe in the Bible has so much more than that. John is going to close his gospel just as he began it. By saying towards the end, these things are written that you may believe. 
And that believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, you may have life in his name. There's so much more to this than just some um, naive, wishful thinking. There's so much more to this in the Christmas story. And I've told you this morning just a little bit more of that story as John presents it. But I can't do this part for you. I can tell you the story, but I can't believe for you. And I present this testimony to you this morning so that you would believe it. And that you'd believe it because it's true. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the true testimony of your word. And 2,000 years later, we thank you for the witness of John the Baptist who was faithful to the task that you gave him. And I pray, Lord, this morning for each person who's here, each person listening, that they would be faithful to respond now in whatever ways that you're prompting them. For those who have not yet known you, that they would believe. And for those who do believe, Lord, that they would know you even more. That one day we might all be gathered up in the everlasting arms of you, our Father. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.